Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. And we have a special co-host. We do. Who we need to introduce to the... Uh, the folks out there in podcast land. Yeah, Commander Brooke Millard, who is a U.S. Coast Guard officer, a cutterman uh, by trade, who is a federal executive fellow assigned to the U.S. Naval Institute, our first full-time FEF. Congrats and, and welcome to the Naval Institute. All right. Thank you. Good morning. Brooke's coming fresh from a very cool tour. What did you do before you got here? I just got off of the Eagle, our tall ship Eagle, as executive officer. That's fantastic. And that- you're, she's a graduate of the Coast Guard Academy? Class of 2003. All right. Wow. So welcome, Brooke. And because of this particular topic, uh, we thought it appropriate that she be one of the co-hosts. More on that in a second. Okay. Um, So let's talk about some current events around the Naval Institute. Um, You mentioned last show, but let's reemphasize the fact that we're going to be breaking ground on our conference center here on September 18th here at the Naval Academy. Very exciting uh, development for us. As you described, this is going to be a game changer, basically what we call our home field, quote unquote. Um, 400 seat wired auditorium, breakout rooms, a full up media center. In fact, we'll be doing the podcast from the media center and uh, maybe yeah. even turn to a video production. Exactly. Kind of a thing. So uh, this is really, we cannot overemphasize what a game changer this is going to be. So groundbreaking happening here in just over a month. So that's very cool. Yep. Our CEO, Pete Daly, has been involved in contract negotiations with the prime contractor for that. And uh, that's been selected uh, and groundbreaking 18 September. And if all goes according to plan, we will be uh, have a grand opening for the conference center probably January or so of 2021. So we're going to be living in a construction zone for about 17 months or so. Uh, but it'll all be worth it once that thing is open because it's going to be, as you said, a game changer for the Naval Institute, the biggest project we have ever taken on. So we have Midshipman First Class Harden here in the studio with us as our Facebook Live producer. He's working the camera and taking your questions on Facebook Live. But this reminds us that they're about done. So they'll be here for another week, week or so. Yep. And uh, then, then we'll lose them on April 16th. I'm sorry, August 16th which reminds me that we're getting into the sponsored student program season. So if you're listening to this and you're a company officer at the Naval Academy or the Coast Guard Academy or a professor of naval science at one of the NROTC units that we sponsor or that our donors sponsor, stand by for me to contact you to start to work the process of getting this fantastic gift to your units. So look for... Uh, an email from us or a voicemail and uh, appreciate your support as always. It's a very cool program. Just to explain to those on the uh, in the listenership who don't know about it, our sponsored student program has been around for eight years, uh, created by our CEO, Admiral Daly. And what our foundation does is find benevolent donors to pay for student memberships for ROTS units and for service academy companies. So it's a 12-month gift. And the folks who accept the gift uh, get Proceedings Magazine and all the other benefits of membership. And ideally, this happens all four years that they're matriculating as undergrads at these various institutions. It's a very cool program. I wish, as we've said before, and I'm sure Brooke would agree, I wish they'd had it um, when we were cadets and midshipmen. 
Um, so uh, this is, we're getting in season. This is a first, first semester activity. When we do do some schoolhouses, I was just at Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare School uh, giving, uh, you know, s- distributing the gift to them. And this is Lieutenant General Gregson, USMC retired, that does that for that, that uh, student body. But we're about to come out um, as we do every mid-August, September timeframe through first semester and uh, offer the gift to those lucky organizations, lucky units and companies at the service academies that have donors. So um, appreciate the uh, the coordination and the uh, attitudes of professors of naval science and company officers. And let me just say that ahead of time. Yeah. And another thing that's coming up that's a big first semester activity. This is the second year we're running the Midshipmen and Cadets Essay Contest. So this is open to anyone who's in a sea service commissioning program, whether it's uh, NROTC, Coast Guard Academy, uh, Kings Point, Naval Academy, etc. We had uh, the, the, the essay contest is sponsored by GDIT. Uh, so the same uh, audience that you just mentioned, all those professors of naval sciences and, and uh, company officers, etc., uh, be aware of this contest. Uh, the deadline is 31 October. So as brigade reform, as ROTC units come back, and as uh, OCS classes uh, get ready to matriculate, etc., um, tell your midshipmen and cadets out there that there is a contest that they can write for. They're not competing against lieutenant commanders and admirals and captains, etc., they're competing against each other across the service um, commissioning programs for the sea services. And uh, last year's winners were all ROTC winners. Uh, we had a Stanford, we had uh, a, a Holy Cross, and we had a Norwich University ROTC uh, midshipman. Uh, so this year we're hoping to broaden that up a little bit. But uh, we had, I think, 80-something, which was great for a first year. Uh, but that's coming out again, our second running of the Midshipmen and Cadets essay contest. As all our contests are, they are judged in the blind. Uh, and you can find more in the August issue of Proceedings. The advertisement is in. And also go to our website, uh, usni.org. Click on Proceedings, and you can find a tab for Essay Contest. And all the information about the Essay Contest, how to enter, uh, is on that uh, webpage. Also, the first prize <coughs> is $5,000. Sweet. Yeah, right. Coin. It's big money. $5,000 for first prize. I think $2,500 and uh, $1,500 for second and uh, and third prizes. So, uh, worth, What cadet or midshipman couldn't use $5,000? Yeah, worth, worth giving up a weekend or two to do a little research, write a paper. I think that the word limit is 2,500 words, so it's not that onerous. Uh, you know, it's probably before your your academic classes uh, are going to start to have lots of uh, papers due. Uh, you know, in in, in uh, end of October, so jump on it quickly. You know, knock it out in in September. Uh, be one of you know your chances of winning are probably one in a hundred or so, or three in a hundred uh, to be a, a, a one of the contesters. And uh, if we don't select your paper to win. Uh, there's a very good chance that you'll get selected to be published in Proceedings or one of our blogs anyway, right? So I think out of the 80 or so last year, we probably published 15 or 20 of the entries. So three were winners. And then we published some others, you know, another 10 or 15 of them uh, in some form or another uh, in Proceedings or on our uh, web pages. So uh, jump on that. And for professors of naval science and, and um for company officers, et cetera, uh, um, alumni, you know, people who are connected with midshipmen and with cadets, tell people about it because this is a great opportunity to write and be published as a midshipman. So I don't know how you're feeling, but the summer has absolutely flown by. Where, as you've described, brigade gets back for reform mid-August. 
Uh, I've been talking to some of the NRTC units. They get back third week of August and get going. And uh, you mentioned Holy Cross. The first Navy football game is against Holy Cross. Ah, okay. We may have mentioned that our CEO, Vice Admiral Pete Daly, USN retired, is a Holy Cross graduate. So we're going to have a little rivalry here uh, for, on August 31st, the first home game. <clears throat> so we're excited about that. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, things happening. We also mentioned uh, before that we're going to Tailhook. So if you're attending the Tailhook Convention in Reno, Nevada, September 5th through 8th, look for us. We're in booth 538. We'll be doing the podcast out there, and it's the 50th anniversary of Top Gun, meaning the real Top Gun. The real Top Gun. Navy Fighter Weapons School. Yep. And And, uh, we'll be looking to do all kinds of things around that. We've already mentioned our special theme issue. Yeah, so the the aviation theme issue, the September issue that will be distributed in all the swag bags out at Top Gun. Uh, Tailhook. Sorry, at at Tailhook with the Top Gun coverage, we've got a special section that's going to be about 25, 26 pages in the magazine dedicated to Top Gun. Uh, We've got four former Top Gun uh, instructors, including two COs, the current CO, Pops Papayano, uh, and a former CO, uh, Proton McLaughlin, who's now the the, uh, president of the Tailhook Association. Both have written for this section in the September issue. We've got a very cool article about uh, Top Gun's use of analytics and their scientists uh, from the Center for Naval Analysis. That's another article that's in it. So this is going to be a really cool collector's edition, 104 pages rather than the normal 96-page September issue. So look for that. In your mailbox, look for it in your swag bag when you uh, when you get to. And that's hook. not overstating it. Calling this a collector's issue. No, no, I mean, this, this is, is seriously yeah with, uh, one of a kind with issue. very very cool photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so congratulations to you, Bill, with your effort there. Um, we're really excited about how this one's uh, turning out. Okay, uh, let's go to our guest. So our guest is online today from Alameda, California. He is the executive officer of the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Weishi. And uh, he is the winner of the 2019 Naval Institute Coast Guard Essay Contest. Commander Craig Allen, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So, Craig, your article uh, is, starts on page 16 and 17 of the August issue of Proceedings. It is called Connectivity Maketh the Cutter. And I'll, I'll jump a little bit to the end because you uh, talk about last year's winner, uh, Commander Dan Wiltshire, who is arguing that the uh, that the Navy should help distribute lethality to Coast Guard cutters. But you make the point that uh, in order for the Coast Guard to be a lethal member of any organization, you know, including its its statutory missions, that the that Coast Guard cutters need much better connectivity. Uh, HF, SATCOM, uh, you name it. But one of the things that is really limiting Coast Guard cutters today is not so much the hulls and the propulsion and personnel as it is the lack of connectivity to move data on and off the ship. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, connectivity, uh, since I came, when I, when I joined the fleet in 2002 um, from my, my first ship, uh, the Venturist, which was um, built in the 60s. Um, so connectivity has always been kind of the uh, the promise of what what's going to unlock some of these next level capabilities. And that's kind of going back to the uh, that, that network centric concept. Um, and then uh, the, the reality of what we've actually been able to achieve with the connectivity has uh, we've always been kind of kind of chasing that um, that end state. So um, in 
several platforms that, that I've been able to serve on, um, including some of the newer platforms like the uh, Fast Response Cutter and, and currently the National Security Cutter, really cutting edge in a lot of regards, huge improvements over our legacy fleet, but still experiencing a lot of the same limitations that, that our older cutters had with respect to the connectivity. And that that kind of uh, that affects us in a lot of ways. So just our, our routine administrative tasks we, we need to log on to uh, websites to just you know, perform uh, personnel functions, uh, finance administration, things like that. And uh, it used to be that you could do a lot of those functions offline. Uh, but since it's a lot of our programs have now been cloud-based, uh, you, you actually need that data connection in order to, to uh, access those functions, which when we don't have that connectivity uh, can be a challenge. And that's, so that's just kind of the uh, the frustration at the day-to-day level. But then when you start looking at the the concepts, the distributed lethality concept, and uh, we start talking about, well, what's what's kind of like the, the next thing that, that we should be looking at in terms of unlocking the, the capabilities for the Navy, but also for the Coast Guard and kind of how we fit, it, that, how we fit into that. And uh, it, there's, there's a lot of great ideas out there. And um, I, I think the... The, the connectivity is really that's that's kind of that that key uh, enabler that is going to enable it's it's going to help us to to achieve some of those, but we haven't been able to to get it right just yet, and it's a it's a complicated pro- problem, and uh, and I appreciate the the cost and and everything else that that um, it takes to to get reliable uh, underway connectivity. It's 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 a it's a difficult problem, but just in the experience that that we had on on the Weishu with our with our last patrol, um, some of the, the the frustrations that we ran into. That's actually what what kind of prompted me to write the article. Is you know there was one night where I had a lot of stuff that I had to do. I couldn't get on anything out, outside of the cutter because our connectivity was down. It'd been down for for several days. So I said, you know what, I'm just gonna open a Word document and start writing about this. So I kind of used that as my outlet to uh, to vent some of the frustration, and then um, that kind of just pulling that thread a little bit, um, you know, so this is how it's limiting us now, but looking forward, you know, how's this going to limit us and what we're, what we're hoping to be able to accomplish with our cutter fleet 10, 20, 30 years in the future. So I'm going to ask both Brooke and Craig to describe on your current ships and Brooke, your, your last ship, the Eagle, um, just what is the connectivity like in terms of, of SATCOM communications bandwidth? Is it like, you know, 2000 era dial up modem or is it worse than that or a little bit better than that? What, and, and, and how, how much does it vary from day to day? So start with Craig. Okay. Uh, so it, it varies quite a bit actually. And it varies a lot by our, our geographic location. So uh, we have a, uh, a system called the KU band, which is a commercial satellite-based connectivity uh, solution that, that we use. And, and it has fairly good coverage around the continental United States uh, where we operate, which sometimes is a uh, thousand or more miles offshore in the Eastern Pacific. Uh, we, a lot of times we we're outside of that, that coverage umbrella. So we end up uh, connecting to the fleet broadband system, which we kind of borrow from the Navy. And, and we're limited in the amount of data that, that we can use per day and also in the in the transmission speed, both upload and download. So once we connect to fleet broadband, uh, really a lot of our, of our normal routine functions become uh, very difficult. And to, to get certain things done, 
sometimes we actually have to get up uh, early, you know, two, three in the morning or stay up late or try to stay out of the those windows where a lot of people are trying to use uh, a program at the same time, just so you can have the bandwidth to try to get something accomplished. Otherwise, you just kind of end up looking at that spinning circle. And that's on the unclassified server on the, on the Nippernet. And then on the on the high side, we also have the uh, the SIPR, which is where we get a lot of our tactical data from. And, you know, that's really what's, that's, that's the most important part of, you know, that's why we're out there. So there are certain times that we, we can't get the data that we need on, on the uh, high side. And we only have that one pipeline for both our unclassified and our classified uh, data. So we'll end up actually shutting down the unclassified side. Um, and uh, that, that sometimes enables us to, to get the throughput that we need on the, on the high side. Unfortunately, that creates a lot of, uh, a lot of problems for us administratively down the road, especially when it's, we're out for, uh, for, for weeks at a time. And, um, so some of these, um, you know, you can put something off for a day or two, but, uh, you know, once, once it starts compounding, you can, you can kind of end up in, uh, uh, people start, um, wondering, Hey, you know, Wayshu, you haven't updated your, uh, your status on this in a long time. What's going on? And, uh, so that's just, that's something that, um, that all of, it's it's not unique to the to the Weishi. Uh It's 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 a fleet wide issue. Um, and anytime you get a group of cuttermen together, uh, the the connectivity situation tends to come up in a in a conversation. So I think it's something that we all understand as a challenge. Um, we just haven't we haven't figured out that solution yet. Well, we felt the same frustrations on Eagle, and I just thought, well, this is Eagle. It's an eighty three year old tall ship. We we just have the worst internet con- connectivity of all the ships. But that's it's upsetting to hear that you know the brand new ships are having the same, uh, feel the same pain. Um, to Craig's point, I mean, our, our yeoman and our, our storekeepers, Eagle, we had 18 ports of call in five months. That's tons of logistics, tons of phone calls. We traveled across the Atlantic Ocean, just like the way she's traveling into other areas of the world, too. You need weather. You need, you know, you need to be able to forecast what's going on. And, and all those requirements require, um, all those needs require some internet connectivity to get that information. But our SKs were, I mean, they had to, they had off hours. They were working at midnight, two in the morning, three in the morning, so that they could get whatever bandwidth they could to get those requests, those logistic requests off the ship and then receive emails. So is that because the Navy is limiting you to that, to a very limited amount of, uh, of uh, uh, broadband on that, on that fleet broadcast? Or is it because the system that you've got on your ships, uh, you know, can't tap in enough or, or doesn't have enough broadband, you know, uh, enough connectivity, uh, you know, programmed into where, what's the, what's the limiting factor here? Right. I'm not a I'm not the ex- expert in this by any means, but from what I understood is that the Coast Guard shares a section, like a portion of the broadband, and that we all have to share that. So if the Navy gives us a certain section of the, of the internet, then the Coast Guard at large has to share that that section. Is that right, Craig? Yeah, that, that's my understanding as well. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with our with our technicians about it, and. Um, yeah, it, it it comes down to I mean there's a there's kind of a trade off between um, you, you you can kind of you can purchase more bandwidth, um, but then there's also so how much bandwidth you're allocated, but then also how much your your equipment is able to to, to actually transmit. So um, if you only have one channel, um, you know even if you open that pipeline all the way, that's still just that one pipeline. Um, Navy ships, as I understand, have have several pipelines, different frequencies that they can um, send and receive data from, and that enables them to 
do a lot more with their with their connectivity underway. So, at what level is uh, Coast Guard leadership aware of this problem, and 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 are you aware of what's being done? Are they programming more money for more satcom systems, for redundant systems, for maybe buying their own, uh, you know, constellation of satellites? What what kind of things are happening? So there is an office uh, that's, that's specifically devoted to cutter connectivity, and uh, it's it's an issue that has been it's it's been going on for a long time. I think uh, almost every after action report um, from from a lot of the the fleet when they when they get back from a patrol, there's there's going to be some comments in there about connectivity. So there it's it's an issue that that we I, I think it's it's been kind of in the in the background. Uh, for for a long time, uh, I just don't think it's it's gathered the uh, attention or the the, the high level. Um, you know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna invest in this um, kind of commitment so far because we're still in the same situation essentially that we were ten years ago, even longer. So Brooke and I were talking before we came on air, and uh, part of what I wanted to do on this conversation is sort of pull up to thirty thousand feet and talk for the uninitiated, unlearned, in terms of Coast Guard savvy part of our listenership. Um, so you have a nice slide here on, Brandon, page, if you page fo- 17. focus yep. on that slide. Uh, on page 17, and, and it's uh, sort of like your basic, uh, here's how everything plays together. And you do make the comment that, um, you know, in your opening uh, uh, sentiments here, that the, the cutter is too close to the shore, and, and there's some other, like, prima facie issues with this, but can you walk us through a primer on how the Coast Guard and its platforms interact? Sure. Um, So that picture is, it's pictures like that have been around for a long time. I was kind of, um, you know, if you, if you recall the deep water era uh, that we went through in the late nineties and the early two thousands, where we were going to, uh, if that was going to be how we modernized our fleet. And then, um, yeah, remind that, me that how that up, went. Uh, how was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that ran into some issues. Uh, and ultimately that, that whole deep water name, um, got dropped. But that, that concept of, of the integrated, uh, the command and control picture is shared by the, by all of our operational assets, uh, through satellite, through other means, uh, the command center, the cutters, the helicopters, every, everything is part of that sort of shared C2 network. Uh, that's really been the narrative that that uh, we've been striving for uh, conceptually for a long time, and um, so as these new platforms have come come online, uh, we uh, they're phenomenal. I mean, the, the FRC is a is a huge uh, upgrade from a from a Legacy 110, and the National Security Cutter compared to a our uh, Legacy 378 foot Hamilton class, huge upgrades in a lot of respects. But when you look at that actual, hey, how do we interact with with one another in, in our C2? What can we actually pass back and forth? So, uh, you know, we get all this, all this great data with our sensors on the national security cutter. Can we push that to another platform that doesn't have that same level of sensors so that they can share that, that tactical picture with us and kind of plug into that network? And, and we're not there yet. We just are, our connectivity, um, in terms of what we can transmit and receive and also the system compatibility, not just within the Coast Guard, but with our interagency partners and with DOD, um, we, we still haven't got that 
to that level where we're, we're really sharing information efficiently. And, and that shows up a lot when we work for Joint Interagency Task Force South, um, which is a, is a DOD interagency, you know, Coast Guard, certainly big part of that uh, integrated picture. Um, there's, there's just this, we, we want to be able to share our information with everybody and um, we haven't been able to achieve that level of fusion yet. And that just a, a lot of, the holdup for that um, is, is in the, the system compatibility, but certainly with, uh, with just how much information we can we can push and receive uh, from our platforms. So if I say to a, a your average Naval Institute audience, frigate, destroyer, cruiser, people would have a, mm-hmm. a sense of those mission differentiations. Um, so mm-hmm. if you give me a quick overview of the difference between an FRC, an OPC, and an NSC. Mission sure. set wise. So, absolutely. So, so the national security cutter, uh, I guess, uh, size wise, it, it's about it's about equivalent to a to a frigate, um, about four hundred eighteen feet, um, and uh, it's our it's our most capable asset. So we we carry um, two uh, over the horizon cutter boats, and then also we have uh, a long range interceptor small boat. Uh, we can carry two helicopters or a helicopter and a, and a small UAV. Um, we have pretty robust uh, sensors on board, um, Slick 32, uh, air, air search radar. So it's in terms of, of what we can actually sense and, and, and receive, certainly the, the national security cutter is, is at the apex for what the Coast Guard has. Uh, the OPC is... It hasn't. We we don't actually have one built yet. They're they're working on that, but um, it's it's going to be uh, very close to what the what the um, national security cutters have in terms of its uh, C four ISR platform. Um, it's also going to have a, a skiff capability like like the national security cutter, which is just huge. Um, and then uh, when you go to the to the FRC, even though that's a it's a pretty significant step down from from the national security cutter and capability, it's when you compare what what an FRC is is able to do to maybe one of our legacy medium endurance cutters like a like a two ten or or a two seventy, um, pretty much on par um, with with what they with what they can do. Uh, set satellite communications, um, the, uh, the underway connectivity they have um, that. Uh, Without getting into the actual name brands, it's it's they they can they can communicate on several different channels, uh, secure unsecure. Um, they just they don't have quite the the uh, capabilities with the sensors that the uh, national security cutter and, and eventually the uh, offshore patrol cutter will have. I, I would say they're about equivalent to for the Navy um, the uh, the cyclone class um, is, a, is a is a close comparison. And then I would say the National Security Cutter, Offshore Patrol Cutter, closer to, to a frigate, or maybe an LCS. And Craig, on page 20 of your article, we've got a picture of the Scan Eagle, and the, the caption says, Coast Guard selected Scan Eagle as the small unmanned aerial system for its National Security Cutters. Will Scan Eagle or another UAS go on the OPC and the, the fast response cutters? So, uh I believe they will eventually. It's certainly for the uh, for the OPC um, for the for the FRC. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be Scan Eagle. Um, it, it might be something uh, might be something smaller. 
I honestly don't know. Um, but I know that the priority right now is, is to get them on the, uh, on all of the national security cutters. And, um, you know, I'm, I think it's, it's, uh, almost a certainty that scan Eagle or something similar is, is going to be, um, on the, uh, OPC as well. Um, FRC, uh, a little more, less, less space to, to put the, the scan Eagle package, uh, than, than the bigger cutters. So I'm not sure if that's going to be the, the right fit for that size platform, but um, I don't know if we've figured that out just yet. Gotcha. But your your article cites some of that uh, frustration that you feel with, you've got this Scan Eagle, which is a very cool, small UAS. It can go out and fly for 10, 12, 15 hours at a time, quite a distance mm-hmm. from the, from your ship. It can collect a lot of imagery. Uh, and then the, the ability that, but to, to move that imagery uh, to higher headquarters or to a C2 node or to the GIADF, the Joint Interagency Task Force that you're operating under, uh, is in- incredibly constrained. So you've got, you know, intelligence that's now on your ship, but you can't move it without downloading it and probably emailing attachments of, you know, large files of, of images uh, that you may or may not actually be able to move out of your, your outbox uh, you know, in, in your email, uh, to the, to higher headquarters to get, you know, follow on, uh, guidance or to, you know, to get some, you know, some more intelligence collection requirements, et cetera. So this is, you know, it's another one of those things where you're, you're saying in your article, Hey, we got some great capabilities, but we are very much constrained, uh, by this ability to move information on and off the ship. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, so much of uh, the operational success for for how we're doing the mission now relies on being able to transmit the the information and and get it to the the people who can kind of analyze it from an intelligence perspective. Um, but the imagery is is a huge part of that, and it's just it is it is very challenging to move imagery uh, on and off the cutter, especially once we get outside of that that KU uh, coverage and, and we're trying to do it on on fleet broadband. It is uh, it, it's very challenging. So, um, I, I think I used the, the comparison to the early, you know, the early, uh, dial up internet is, you know, when it, when you try to download a, a picture and it would take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, that's, that's kind of, uh, it's, it's a pretty close equivalent to, to what it's like to try to move that, that imagery on and off a, uh, an underway cutter. So what's, an average mission look like uh, out of Alameda? What, 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 what is the nature of what you guys are doing? You're doing counter drug stuff. Are you doing um, sort of monitoring shipping? What, what, what mission sets are you doing? So we've got, uh, currently we've got four national security cutters based here in Alameda and uh, their, their mission set is they're, they're, they're really, it's, it's a global range that the national security cutters have. So for example, uh, Bertoff just returned from uh, doing a, a Western Pacific patrol, and, and they actually got a lot of uh, lot of coverage uh, in their in the South China Sea. Um, uh, Stratton is, is is underway right now. They're getting some coverage for one, some of the things they're doing in Indo-PACOM. Uh, we spend a lot of time doing counter drug uh, Eastern Pacific. That's a, that's that's really where the, the majority of the threat vector for the the narcotics is right now, and. Uh, Usually, there's at least one national security cutter down there. But we also go north. Uh, we go up to and, and patrol uh, Alaska, and, uh, the Arctic. Um, so it's it's a it's a very diverse 
mission range. And um, they, uh, because we can deploy for, uh, for, for up to six months at a time, uh, it's, uh, you, get, you get a lot of different um, missions for the, for the national security cutters. Yeah, so I think people understand the counter-drug mission and, and what would be involved there. But when you're in Indo-PACOM, AOR, or up in, uh, you know, the Arctic Circle or wherever you might go in the Northern Pacific, what are you doing? Freedom of navigation? Are you monitoring ice flows? Are you doing fisheries uh, kind of things? What, what, are you, what are you doing in those, in those environments? So, uh, Northern Pacific, we, uh, the fisheries is, is, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a long time mission for the Coast Guard up there. And, um, you know, it's, I think everyone's, uh, understands that there's some, some challenging, uh, weather conditions that, that cutters experience a lot of times, uh, especially in the Bering Sea. So, um, that's, that's a, a major part of the mission. Have you ever uh, met Sig Hansen also, on the deadliest catch? Have you ever met Sig Hansen? He's a rock star. Deadliest oh, catch. I haven't. I, I haven't <laughs> I'm kidding. I haven't yeah, but when you talk about dangerous conditions, I'm thinking of deadliest catch. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, man, some of the, the footage from that is It's nuts. Uh, it's terrifying. nuts. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's crazy. So, um, but yeah, it's a, there, there's, other, there's other facets to that mission too. I mean, we um, just uh, patrolling the, the Arctic is, I'm sure everyone uh, listening to this podcast is aware is there's a there's a national security component uh, to to what we're doing up there, interacting with uh, some of our friends and uh, from Russia, um, and uh, also just uh, just interacting with some of the other um, the, the the native people up there, just kind of a show the flag mission. Um, that that's usually part of, of uh, our patrol up there as well. So, so there's. There's actually there's there's quite a bit going on up there, and of course the the Arctic is uh, it's getting a lot of attention, and and the the Coast Guard's role in that is um is kind of a uh, hot topic. Uh, I guess that's maybe that's the wrong term for talking about the Arctic, but um yeah. So, <laughs> so when you talk uh, about yeah, Craig, when on. you talk about interacting with the Russians, um are are we talking about we're establishing just presence or dominion or drawing red lines? What 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 are, what are we doing there specifically? Well, you know, I think the, the what the Coast Guard is doing there is, is probably different than uh, than than what some of our, our gray hole uh, uh, sister ships are doing up there. Uh, but yes, establishing a presence is, is certainly part of that. Having a, a U.S. flag cutter up there doing doing missions, uh, showing you know that that we're exercising our sovereignty in that region. Uh, that's that's part of that that grand strategy strategic view of uh of the arctic but uh you know when you see some of the some of the footage of the the close calls with with uh the, the russian and the and the and the u.s uh the pilots and the the close aboard maneuvering with the, the russian ships and the and the u.s navy ships that it's not really uh how we see how we fit into that mission up there hopefully i I, I, w- I would never want to see one of the, the Russian uh, missile cruisers, um, you know, making some kind of crazy Ivan maneuver at us and you know, yeah. coming 200 yards from our stern. I, hopefully that's not going to happen. Yeah, the, the Coast Guard is much more involved with uh, protecting our fisheries off the in the Gulf of Alaska in that area. And there's a lot of Russian fishing fleet and Chinese fishing fleet vessels that come and try to fish in the EEZs of other nations, including the United States, so that fisheries protection 
role is is significant and growing because uh, of the you know the the growing protein needs of the you know the the incredible population of the Chinese and, right? the, and they're fishing out their own waters right yeah, so they're right. expanding out expanding out yeah. across the world uh, Craig you mentioned the Bertolf uh, just coming back from uh, a deployment out to uh, the Western Pacific and under Indo-PACOM and working with the Navy do you know if Bertolf when she, when she was deployed were these connectivity issues any easier or better for her uh, because she was under you know Navy opcon or, or um, you know a, a DoD opcon and and specifically doing mission sets that that more align with Department of Defense than specifically with Coast Guard missions. I, I know it was a it was a major planning factor um, leading up to Bertoff's deployment. Uh, just the the amount the the C two requirements for for that mission are significantly greater than even our uh, working with GIF. So how and also the the, the where Bertoff was going to be operating geographically different than the where cutters normally operate. So there, there was a lot of, of thought that went into that. And uh, Bertoff actually did get some upgrades um, to, to its uh, bandwidth allocation and its, its, its connectivity capabilities. Uh, and I can't talk to the details specifically to, to how that worked, but it sounded like uh, it, it helped some, but there were still, significant challenges that they had to overcome uh, specifically with the with the connectivity yeah it reminds me a little bit of uh operating with some of our nato allies i remember uh when i was a commander on a, a carrier strike group maybe 10 years ago or so uh and and we were doing all this planning with a, a, a british aircraft carrier the illustrious right it was coming over and, mm-hmm. and so we were um trying to do uh, i was trying to push a lot of information through cipernet email to the uh, the N2 the intelligence officer and their his team on board the illustrious uh and then when they got to Norfolk I said hey did you know I haven't heard from you did you get my emails and he's like yeah I I just need to gauge your um your expectations a little bit because we have one cipernet terminal on the entire aircraft carrier that's for everybody including the admiral so if you send me an email i may not get it for a week you know 10 days so you know connectivity is really critical right if you want to be able to do as as you know starting with admiral sobrowski this idea of network centric warfare where every sensor and every shooter are all linked up and can pass targeting data and information back and forth it really requires high bandwidth com- communications that's redundant uh, that uh, that works and that you can rely on that everybody has that capability otherwise you're about as good as the you know the weakest link in the chain so uh, hey Craig we uh, have enjoyed having you on the show thanks again for writing you are a repeat offender you also <laughs> won a Naval Institute essay contest a couple of years ago uh, I think it was the 2017 Coast Guard essay contest so congratulations for continuing to move and propel your career you're now a XO of uh, of a national security cutter continuing to to uh, read, write, fight for us. Uh, so we appreciate that. Good luck as you uh, and the the way she uh, get ready for your next uh, time underway, wherever that takes you, Eastern Pacific or up in the, the uh, Gulf of Alaska, whatever mission set you've got. Uh, great talking to you today. And uh, we look forward to whatever you write for us next. Yeah, that was great. And All right. let's also say once again, welcome to Commander Brooke Millard. And we look forward to having her on the show often. So thank you, Brooke. Agreed. All right, thanks, Craig. 
Okay, well, that uh, gives us another example of how victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you all again next week. <laughs>